Welcome back to True Crime B&B. This is episode 71. I'm Beth. And I'm Bailey. And we're recording on Mother's Day. We sure are. So happy really, really late Mother's Day to all the mothers yeah. out there. It's going to be like 12 days late for you by the time you hear it. Yeah. Yes, I so today I am the bad guy because it's Mother's Day and I can be bad if I want to. It's her party and she'll cry if she wants. Literally. <laughs> I'm going to try not to do that. Okay. <laughs> So, you got anything before I get started? Uh, not this week. I don't Shout think. out to Macau. Shout out to Macau. Yes, we've been in their top charts for three months now, I believe. Continuously for three months, and that's yeah. exciting. So, if you're in Macau and you've been listening to us, we thank you. We love you. We see you. We know what you're doing, and we appreciate you. And you know what? The fact that not only that they listen to a lot of our episodes, but they do it every week. They're still there. And That's we're right. still staying in those charts. So That's exciting. Whoever you are, we appreciate you very much. And we thank you. And let's on with the show. Here we go. Okay. <laughs> My story today is about a woman that is considered by some to have been the first person murdered by the internet. Oh. I'm surprised that this isn't out there more because it was... A really big deal when it happened. Okay. Amy Lynn Boyer, have you heard her name? No. Amy Lynn Boyer was born May 4th, 1979 into a big, loud, loving family in New Hampshire. Amy was the middle child out of three with an older brother and a younger sister. She loved her younger sister and her older brother and she just couldn't do enough things with them. Mm -hmm. The Boyer family was active, energetic, loved spending time together, and they faced the world as a team. They were dedicated to their commitments, but anytime there was a free moment, they were having cookouts, shopping together, going boating, camping, anything outdoors. Amy couldn't get enough of it. She never left the house without telling every member of her family that she loved them. She made it clear that she valued her family and she loved them with all of her heart. She was close with everybody in the family, but she and her mom had an especially deep love and respect for one another. She held nothing back. Her deep family relationships included six grandparents, all of whom she spent time with anytime she could manage it. As she grew up, she was constantly meeting new people and making new friends. But when she made new ones, unlike a lot of people, you move to a new place and you make new friends and you just kind of drop the people that you left behind. It falls out because you're... Yeah, it falls through the cracks because it's really hard to keep all those relationships going. But when she made new ones... She never dropped the old ones, and as far as she was concerned, the more the merrier. Mm. In 1990, the family had moved from a little town in New Hampshire to Nashua, New Hampshire, when she was 11. Amy quickly began making friends with the kids at her new school, and everybody noticed the beautiful, smart, sweet-spirited new girl in class. Amy didn't know it, but a boy a year older than she was noticed her the next year in the local church youth group. Amy was 12. He was instantly infatuated. But he didn't know her name or that they would be going to the same school in the fall. In fact, he didn't learn her name until two years later when he was in her algebra class and the teacher called on her in class early in the school year. So he was a year older, but they were in the same grade. Okay. From that point on, the boy knew her name was Amy. But Amy never really had met him. He never spoke in class. He never introduced himself. He stayed out of the limelight. He was not popular in school. He didn't have a lot of friends. He really just admired her from afar and kept to himself. Hashtag all of us in high school, am I right? A lot. In the beginning of 1994, Amy was 14 and in ninth grade, and the boy typically rode home on Amy's school bus. Not together. Amy still didn't know this boy's name was Liam Ewans, and since he was a year older and only secretly paying attention to Amy, she just never paid any attention to him. Just a background character in her life. Exactly. He's just around. Mm -hmm. But they were on the school bus with Amy sitting near the front but facing backwards. Another boy named Jared English was sitting at the back of the bus, and he was sitting back there doing teenage boy things, just being obnoxious, making some really loud, strange noises. Mm-hmm. Amy, who was facing the back, playfully just shouted at him, Jared, shut up! Liam, in the middle of the bus between them, suddenly decided at this moment that he loved Amy. And at the same moment, he understood that she was never going to love him back. And his thoughts went from, God, I love her, to, looks like it's suicide for me. Car accident? Wrists? And within a few days, he had added to this macabre daydream, hey, why don't I kill her too? So that escalated quickly. Yeah, my dude, like, tried talking to her maybe first. He just—he knew that he was never going to be in her league and that she was never going to reciprocate his feelings. But he literally, like you said, he never tried. 
As time went on, Liam continued obsessing over Amy, and it just got worse. He tried to arrange his schedule at school so that he could get some class, any class with her, so that he would be sure to see her at least once every day. Mm. Amy had started to notice this watching. She knew he was watching her all the time. He would stare directly at her when she walked down the hall at school. And now instead of even giving her a chance to like you back, now you've just creeped her out. Mm -hmm. You're not putting her in a position where she can reciprocate anything to you because you've already put her on the spot. She was relieved that she didn't have any classes with him, despite his best efforts to make that happen. Amy and her best friend Bethany talked about how awkward the whole thing was for Amy, but somehow Bethany seemed to think it was a great idea to provoke him. Mm. One day, for instance, Amy was driving with Bethany in the passenger seat. Bethany mockingly stuck her head out the window and yelled, Hi! out the window at Liam. He was totally unprepared, caught him by surprise, didn't respond at all, but it obviously upset and embarrassed him. Mm -hmm. He knew they were mocking him, or knew that Bethany was mocking him. I don't think Amy was actually doing anything at all. Liam's reaction to knowing that Amy was becoming uncomfortable with his attention was that he knew every time he was anywhere near her, Amy was thinking about him. And that was kind of a power trip for him. Mm -hmm. I can't get her to like me, but I can get her to pay attention to me. She was trying to avoid him. She would try not to make eye contact. She would make it seem as if she hadn't even seen him in the hall, but he knew she was just unable to stop him getting into her mind because of the way he was making her feel. All this time, his innermost thought was still that he dreamed of killing Amy, but the daily contact in the halls, etc., seemed to make it possible for him to get through the day. So as long as he was seeing her and he knew that he was having some amount of impact on her life, mm -hmm. it was like, okay, well, that will keep me going another day. It gives him an extension of, okay, well, maybe not today, then maybe. Yeah, exactly. Okay. For much of that school year, Amy had also been feeling awkward, down, kind of out of sorts. There had been a pall over the school since two Nashua High School sophomores had been killed in a car crash the previous April. But in addition to that, Amy still didn't have a boyfriend, and this weird kid Liam wouldn't back off and just leave her alone. She was just always kind of creeped out all the time. On Valentine's Day, as many schools do, students can order flowers to be delivered to other students, and this year, Amy received a rose from an admirer. She was excited. Things might just be looking up. Maybe if she had a boyfriend, that weirdo would lose interest and leave her alone. Mm -hmm. At lunchtime, she went to sit with the boy who had sent her the rose, and they were just talking, laughing, smiling. It was the beginning of something sweet, and the two of them were just enjoying sitting and talking together. So it was legitimately another guy, not Liam, that sent her yes. the rose. Yes, okay. it, it, was, a, it, it was, was a different guy, and it was a real... Not a weirdo? A real gesture of affection, and hey, could we get to know each other? Okay. It was not from Liam. Good. Three times during this conversation, during lunch, Amy looked up and caught Liam's eye staring at her through the cafeteria windows. He quickly averted his eyes, even though his head never turned away from her. Several people besides Amy noticed the creepy way that Liam was stalking and acting towards her, and so someone reported it to a police officer, a man named Sergeant Smith. Sergeant Smith sat down with Liam and had a conversation with him, mentioning that Liam's shotgun in his truck or his car made him suspicious, telling him that Liam needed to learn some respect, but never directly addressed the elephant in the room of leave Amy alone. Is this one of those school officers? Some schools have one officer that's there for an emergency. They didn't specifically say it was a resource officer, mm -hmm. but I think maybe he was... Okay. But he comes up again later in the story outside the school. So I'm not positive if he was a resource officer. Or if maybe they didn't call him that back then. Maybe he just was the local officer that would stop by the school. Or yeah, now that may be what was going on. Totally. So several times during the time period after he got sat down and talked to by Sergeant Smith, other people had pulled him aside as well. People within the school, probably some teachers, other people. And they hinted at what he should have understood already. Mm -hmm. That he was being inappropriate, that he was making her uncomfortable. But nobody directly intervened and said, you have to leave her alone. Nobody said that. Mm -hmm. Amy had several part-time jobs during her teens. One was as a cashier and later as a manager at a Dairy Queen that was owned by a family friend. Another job had her working at CVS during the school year. And many times she left school early if she didn't have a last period class, and then she would go home and catch a nap before her work shift. Mm -hmm. During the school year, Ewans had been watching where Amy got off the school bus, so he knew she lived on Woodbury Drive, but he wasn't sure which house she lived in. 
she would get off the bus and stand and talk to her friends a few minutes, and then the bus had moved on, so he didn't know where she went after that. Seems like a very strategic mood on her part. Like, she probably was aware, okay, let's wait till that guy's out of sight before I go home. You're probably right. I didn't think about that, but she probably was. Like, I don't want that guy to know which house is mine. Towards the end of junior year, though, Amy had started driving to school. So then he was seeing her driving while he was riding the bus. He drove down her street and took photos of every house on the street trying to figure out which one was hers. But one day, Amy had left early. She had skipped that last class and left early, and as the bus went down, Woodbury Drive, Liam saw Amy's car in the driveway of a house. So now he knew where her car was parked. On the last day of school, 1996, Amy and her boyfriend, the boy who had bought her the Valentine's Rose, were kissing, making out a little bit in the hallway when Liam saw them. Liam held on to this memory and locked it away so that he could pull it up in the future as motivation when he wanted to do something violent to her in the future. One day in the early summer, a help wanted sign appeared in the window at CVS, prompting Liam to wonder if Amy had quit her job at CVS. He decided to take in a roll of film for developing to see if she was still working there. When he came back to pick up the photos, the photos had been destroyed and Sergeant Smith was waiting for him at the CVS because whoever saw them knew where those houses were. Oh, so those are the ones. Okay. I didn't connect him taking pictures of the houses and then him getting the photos developed, but okay, yeah, that's, that explains a lot. And in fact, he had taken the, the pictures of the houses, but he hadn't used up the entire roll of film. Mm-hmm. So it just was odd. It's like, why did you take a picture of seven houses, but then got five more unused photos on this roll, but you're bringing it in to be developed? Yeah, that's bizarre. So as you oh, intuited, the roll he had dropped off had been the photos of the houses all up and down Amy Street. Mm-hmm. As he left the store, the police officer stayed behind. And then, because other people in the store were getting creeped out by his coming in there all the time, because he would go in there looking for Amy, Mm -hmm. a policeman was placed in the store nearly every day for the next year. The police decided that Liam was getting off on knowing that they were there because of him, so that's when they ended the police presence. But at this point, there have already been several incidences where he has done something disturbingly creepy. Yeah. So people know that this is going on, but this was in the 1990s before that was known to be such a dangerous escalation of events. Well, the thing I'm wondering is what is, even now, if all of this happened, yeah, it's obvious, red flags, red flag central going on here, but realistically, what could they do, you know? Like, they can't just arrest him just because he happens to be there if he's, oh, no, I was just doing a project with these house pictures, and oh, I drive past these houses on my bus every day. Like, he literally just happens to have just enough in common with her to where it's hard to say. Yeah, and I think that that's how so many stalkers get away with it. Yeah. They make it look like, well, this could have just been a coincidence. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you're right. At this point, I don't think that he's done anything that would make him arrestable. There's Mm -hmm. nothing that she would probably even have been able to get a protection order at that point in time, even though if she had, it wouldn't have done any good. Yeah. I mean, I guess the school could have taken a little more responsibility since they were clearly aware of the situation. Yeah. Expel him. You know? Hey, if you're not going to act right around this girl, then you need to not be here anymore. Right. You know? Yeah. Okay. Continue. Sorry. That's okay. Liam at this time was five foot eleven and only 130 pounds, so he was a very thin guy. He thought he was too thin. He thought his face was too gaunt. He spent a lot of time focusing on his perceived physical imperfections and had decided that he needed to have plastic surgery to correct his sunken chest. He approached his mother, who was super religious and very judgmental and unsupportive, and he asked her to give him the money to have this surgery done. The current cost today of silicone implants that are custom made to correct pectus excavatum varies between $19,500 and $25,000 as a base figure. So naturally, Mother Ewan said no, she was not able to pay that amount of money, and at that time that would have been between ten and $13,000 in 1996. That's like a whole year of college back then. Or Actually, two, two years. That would have been when I went to college. That would have been about two and a half years. But it's still like, I just needed a small loan of (laughs) $25,000. Yeah, seriously. (laughs) 
God. Maybe that would have helped his self-image enough that he maybe would have had enough confidence then to not stalk people. Maybe he would have been a little bit more forthright in getting to know people, but who, See, you never know. I mean... I think a guy like this, who's clearly pretty insecure and narcissistic, he would get that and feel better about himself, yes. Maybe leave her alone, but then he's going to get a girlfriend and he's going to treat her like shit because he's now got this illusion of grandeur. I don't have a sucking in chest anymore. Yeah, like he just, he feels better and therefore he takes out his still insecurity, not understanding why he's still insecure on other people. So he's, nothing would have helped this guy, Yeah, to be honest. Well, he needed therapy. He needed a lot of mental help and physical shit didn't matter. I don't know that he had mental illness. I just think he needed to be counseled. I think he needed someone to sit down with him and help him understand what is going on. Why are you acting like this? He was never diagnosed with any mental illness, and there's nothing in here that makes me think it sounds like it. Well, mental illness doesn't have to be, like, a disorder. It can just be, oh, you're a narcissist. Like It's not like you can give somebody a prescription to not be a narcissist anymore. Here's (laughs) anti-narcissism pills. Anyway, Mother Ewan said no. Enraged by her lack of support, Liam went in and threw her china cabinet down a flight of stairs. She called police. He was arrested. He was accused of criminal threatening and criminal mischief. At the time he was arrested, he threatened suicide, but his mother said, ah, he didn't mean it. That's not real. He was convicted, and he was later ordered to attend anger management classes. And we wonder why he's got issues. Yeah, exactly. I mean, how many times do we see that? Amy and Liam both graduated in 1997, despite being a year apart in age. Like I said, they were the same grade. Amy was relieved to see him out of her day-to-day life. Mm -hmm. She's thinking at this point he's going to move on. She began a three-year dental hygienist study program and worked at the same time. She was still dating the same boyfriend. They were very much in love. Amy was very relieved that Liam left Nashua to attend Rochester Institute of Technology in Rochester, New York. She hoped he would find something else to be interested in and just bug off for good. He's gone. She's thinking, okay, I'm finally off the hook. But while Amy was studying for three years and living at home, Liam was still secretly obsessing and planning how to kill her, even from where he was. She thought he was gone, but he was not gone. In fact, he was unable to fit into college life, oddly enough, and disliked living in a dormitory because you're surrounded by other people who may or may not like you. Mm -hmm. So he dropped out after his freshman year. He returned to Nashua and lived at home with his mother and attended one more semester, this time at a local community college. Okay, he sound like me so far. <laughs> I don't love that. <laughs> Over the next two years, Liam worked jobs that he used mostly to save money so that he was able to purchase firearms. He was building up kind of a stockade in his bedroom at home at his mom's house. Okay, woo. He had such total dissatisfaction with his life that he had nothing to distract him from thoughts of Amy. Over a four-year period, he had dreamt about her four times. Only four times. But according to his blog... In 1999, he had started dreaming of her far more frequently. He wrote about one disturbing dream where Amy was pregnant, so he stabbed the fetus through her body and then cut Amy's throat. So we're starting to get a little bit more moving in the direction of, okay, something bad is really going to happen And this is a public blog that he's writing this about? Yes. How do we know this? All of this information was in his online blog, which very clearly gave Amy's full name, her location, multiple photos of her, and expressed definite violent intents towards her. And it was all on the internet, like the open internet, not the dark web, because I don't know if the dark web existed yet in 1999. Well, there were no rules at this time yet. There weren't. Mm -hmm. There really weren't. And there's going to be a lot more about that later on. While Liam was going off the deep end in his online blog and planning horrible things to do to her, Amy had started working as an orthodontist assistant. She had held this job and had done great work at the practice for several years, but it just got to be too difficult to maintain this really important job and still take a full load of college coursework. So she was in her final year of school and she just didn't want to overdo it. Amy went to the orthodontist to thank him for the opportunity and to give her notice of resignation. Amy was a great employee, she was a great fit for the office, and they wanted her to work there after she finished her studies. She was so valued by the doctor and staff that they offered to modify the hours of operation of the practice in order to be able to keep her. She was that important to them that they're like, okay, well, we'll open an hour later and we'll close an hour later or whatever in order order to accommodate her busy schedule. Mm -hmm. 
Over a months-long period, Ewan stalked Amy's family, watching their house, keeping logs of the times each person arrived and left and with whom. Amy normally left the house before 7 a.m., went to school, left school, headed to her job. Then after her job, she would stop at her boyfriend's house and often wasn't home until after 11 p.m. or midnight. Amy was so busy all the time that she was often gone when Ewan's was watching and he didn't get to log her comings and goings as much as the rest of the family. Mm -hmm. And over this period of time, Ewan's was logging all of this information he was gleaning from stalking her and her family in the online blog. So he clearly was doing all these really creepy things that were publicly available to anybody who could find it. But the problem was, in 1999, most of us didn't even know blogs existed. You wouldn't know how to find them. Yeah, there wasn't Google. There wasn't... Well, there probably was Google, but nobody is, like knows how to do that just yet. There Nobody's... just wasn't that much internet savvy out there in the general public. Now, granted, there weren't tons of blogs online in the 90s yet, but they were becoming something that some people knew about. People did have access to them if they had internet access, and anyone who had happened to run across Ewan's blog would have seen everything he was posting, including his rants and explicit plans and fantasies about wanting to kill Amy. Over time, the blog started talking about how the family's truck was parked in the street rather than in the driveway. Ewan's took this to mean that they knew he was planning something. So they were moving the trucks from the driveway to the street. This was all in his mind, of course. They didn't know he was planning anything. Delusional. The plan he thought they knew about was that he wanted to kill the whole family since he couldn't figure out how to get just Amy out of the house by herself so he could only kill her. Once he concluded that Amy's family knew about this plan to kill her and them, Ewan's decided he wouldn't be able to kill her at home and decided to set out to find out where her jobs were. Mm -hmm. He used her name and street address to do an internet search but wasn't having much luck on his own. He needed her date of birth and her social security number to get to the next level of information which would be her work address. So next he reached out to an internet search company called 1-800-US-SEARCH and then from there he went to DocuSearch.com, a private information broker, who sold him her social security number for $45. DocuSearch then used pretexting to trick her into revealing the address of the orthodontic office by calling and fraudulently pretending to be from a health insurance company who was trying to process a refund that needed to be forwarded through her employer, so he needed the office address. In those days, before people were constantly on alert for scammers, like we are now, she gave the address. And this information cost him $109. So for $150, he got social security number and her work address. From that point on, Ewan started to shadow Amy almost everywhere she went because he wasn't working. He would just follow her everywhere. With her at this point still having no idea that he was even around or that he was obsessed with her or that she was being followed, Amy didn't have the first idea that Liam was a threat to her. Friday afternoon, October 15th, 1999, was a beautiful fall day. Still working at the orthodontist's office after they had made it clear how vital she was to their operations, Amy left the workplace with two co-workers looking forward to the weekend. The three of them walked together down an alley to where they were parked. Amy climbed into her car and closed the door just like any other day and put her purse on the passenger seat. But just then, Ewan's drove up. He very quickly drove his car right up next to her, car door to car door, trapping her in place. He shouted out her name and she turned her head to see who had called her. Ewan's raised his Glock 9mm semi-automatic pistol and Amy raised her arms up in a futile attempt to protect her head. But Ewan's fired 10 shots into Amy's face and arms paused for only a few seconds, then placed the barrel of the gun into his mouth and used one last bullet to kill himself. At home, Amy's mother, Helen, cheerfully answered the telephone and was immediately hit with the voice of Dr. John Bednar, Amy's boss, insisting, you have to come. It's Amy. Helen, please come. Amy, Amy, oh my God. Hurry, Helen. Helen, in a panic with no real idea what had happened, she just knew her daughter needed her, called her husband, who was Amy's stepfather, Tim, who worked close to the orthodontics practice. He immediately got in his car and raced towards the office. On his way there, he saw oncoming emergency vehicles and assumed they might have already been there to get Amy, so he turned around and followed them to the hospital. He got there and parked, and he ran as fast as he could into the hospital where he was immediately put into a room by himself where he had to wait until a nurse came in to tell him that Amy was dead. He lost his balance. He fell to his knees. He was having trouble catching his breath. 
He knew his wife, Amy's mother, would be coming up outside the emergency room, and he needed to get to her. As he stumbled outside, Helen took one look at Tim and immediately intuited that Amy had died. Ewens's blog claimed that he had driven to the location multiple times, ready to kill Amy, but for one reason or another he hadn't been able to do it. He had been building up his bravado since he had gotten the address from DocuSearch.com in July. Ewens had also obsessed less so but still had attempted multiple times to kill a former schoolmate owen banks who also attended nashua high school banks like amy had no idea he was being stalked and later on claimed not to have known ewins at all amy's mother filed a federal wrongful death suit because of the questions it raised about internet privacy concerns specifically she sued for wrongful death invasion of privacy through intrusion upon seclusion, invasion of privacy through commercial appropriation of private information, violation of the Fair Credit Reporting Act, and violation of the New Hampshire Consumer Protection Act. Another disturbing fact is that Liam Ewens was literally detailing his stalking and plans to kill Amy on the World Wide Web, where anyone with internet access would have been able to find it, read it, and should have reported it if they did. A quote that is found in his blog, which was actually true then and is still true today, is this, quote, It's actually obscene what you can find out about a person on the internet, end quote. And while there was a lot of conversation, and over the last 20 years, endless people have tried to figure out how to solve the problem of personal safety issues related to internet privacy data breaches, the problem just seems to continue to get worse all the time. People searching for their own names online can find a small amount of the personal information about themselves that exists, and far more is available in deeper or paid searches. If you go in and try to have information removed, it's almost inevitable that it's going to reappear in a different location. So you have basically no control over what information people can find. Even if you don't have any online accounts, which is nearly impossible now, there are many government agencies that post your name, your address, your phone number, various other bits of information. But at the time of Amy's murder, this issue was really not publicly known. People were not savvy about this yet. People didn't think about or realize that their information might even be found online. They just had no idea. It never occurred to them to look. And Ewens had maintained the blog for over two years, but had detailed all eight years of his activities, his obsession, his murder fantasies, other violent content. That's where we got the information at the beginning of the story about the first time he saw her, the first time he learned her name. He detailed all of this, and he had a dozen pictures of her on there, her full name, everything that people needed to know to find out that she was in danger. All of it was in this blog for two years. He had a guest book where somebody, only one person, but somebody had left a comment. Nice page, very informative. So somebody did find it and think there was a great blog. And there were emails back and forth between Ewens and somebody named Peter in Greece who had egged him on to kill Amy. On the day of Amy's murder, Ewens left a message for Peter in the final entry on the blog. Peter, see if I did it. And then he added a link to the local television station website. People are sick. Well, I think that was when, around the time when people started getting on the internet and were trolling a lot. Oh, yeah. And so he probably did not think this guy was serious, but I'm sorry. The second he starts posting photographs of this girl, that's when you go, hmm, maybe this guy isn't right in the head. Maybe I should back off and not talk. Well, maybe Peter's not right in the head. Valid. Either or. Amy's stepfather, Tim Remsburg, wanted the internet web hosting company that hosted the blog to be held responsible for not reporting the violent content and threats to authorities so that Amy's murder could have been prevented. But those companies were protected by federal law that said the web host had no liability for material their customers posted on their personal web pages. One of the companies, called Tripod, claimed they had neither monitored the blog nor been aware of its contents and that the site had been visited very few, only a handful of times. They theorized that maybe no one ever saw the blog aside from Ewan's, but obviously at least a couple of people did. And I'm no legal expert nor an internet expert, so I checked cyberlaws.it, which states, quote, The hosting provider must be precluded from having control over the content or editing rights that would give the provider knowledge about the content, and then some other gibberish after that. Mm -hmm. Meaning they're not responsible for the content as long as they're not helping create or have any control over the actual website content. And that's current. That's what the current law is. Do they have to put like a disclaimer at the bottom of the page then? Is that what all those are for? I don't know if it requires that. Okay. It has been said that Amy Lynn Boyer was the first person who was murdered by the internet. And obviously she was murdered by Liam Ewens, but it wouldn't have happened 
had it not been for the information he found on the internet. And her loss devastated her family. It still devastates her family to this day. But it must be salt in their wounds to have gone through all of this and really things aren't any better. Cyber stalking is still a huge problem. Data selling is still a huge problem and worse now than it was then. Incursions into personal privacy are huge problems. Amy's mother and stepfather, Helen and Tim, spoke out everywhere and anywhere they could get people to listen to try to get people to understand the danger of not being internet savvy. Just because you're not on it doesn't mean there's not information available about you on it. Mm -hmm. They went on talk shows. They were on the news. They testified in front of the United States Congress, just trying to make people understand the lessons they had learned in the most agonizing way possible. After four years in the courts, in March 2004, Amy's mother Helen's lawsuit was decided in her favor, and she was awarded $85,000 from DocuSearch.com. It's not a lot of money, but it was a gesture. Helen was the first to agree that the money could never replace her daughter, but she was heartened that the lawsuit and press around the settlement had shined some light on the ugly and until then largely unobserved practice of selling people's personal information. Mm -hmm. She said, quote, we want other people to do what we didn't know how to do back then. Put your name, your children's names, in a search engine and see what might be out there, end quote. And even today, you can go into a search engine, you can search yourself. Of course, mine comes to a famous person who has my name, so it would be harder to find information about me, but mm -hmm. I just, the story is heartbreaking because there were so many signs. But back then in 1999, it was before stalking was even illegal in most states. Yeah, it was one of those situations where it really felt like, up until the blog at least, once he started doing the blog, I think that was enough to at least get a warrant for arrest and to search his property and stuff. But no one who knew Amy saw the blog. Exactly. In that, in that time frame. Like, nowadays, if somebody had a whole blog with one of our names on it, we would probably find out pretty quick, I feel like. Yeah. But, mm, yeah. Well, and the fact that the blog and he was only working at his part-time job. I mean, he had all the time in the world on his hands. So he worked part-time. He used any money he made from that to buy weapons. They found five, I think four or five weapons in his bedroom in addition to the Glock that he killed Amy with. So if they had found the blog, if they had seen it, if they had said, this looks like a credible threat to me mm -hmm. and found out about all these weapons, surely there would have been some way to at least prevent him from following her. But like we've talked before, protection orders very rarely actually protect anyone. All they do is give you something to fall back on after they've broken the protection order to say, you broke this protection order, so now you are going to spend 30 days in jail or whatever. Yeah, at that point, it's just an additional sentence on whatever they happen to do to you when they break that order. You know what I well, mean? Well, even just being seen if you aren't allowed to be there. But, yeah. but nevertheless, it's a really sad story. Okay. And Amy Lynn Boyer kind of falls through the cracks on it because there's so many other issues involved. So let's remember Amy Lynn Boyer's name and let's try to remember the lessons that we learned from this crime. How old was she? She was 20 when she was murdered. And already working as a full-time... Ugh, that's horrible. Yeah, she was a great person. She was a great person. Mm. She worked hard. She was going to make a great life for herself. And she had had other dreams, but I think she toned her dreams down. At one point, she wanted to be a dentist. Mm -hmm. But because of him, he kind of put a damper on her future aspirations. She's like, okay, well, let's just tone this down a little bit. Well, and she's probably got that to that point where she's happy where she is. She feels safe where she is. She has people that she knows are looking out for her, so. So that is the story of Amy Lynn Boyer, and I would like to hear what you have to tell us about today. I'm sad about Amy. I know. What do you have? I'm going to tell you about a survivor named Ellen Halbert. All right. Hello, Ellen. And we don't have a whole lot of information about her. Like you always say, because they're a survivor, they're mm -hmm. limited in what they want to release sometimes. That's right. And it's absolutely their right to be private if they want to. Yes. So I don't even have her age. But I do know when this story begins. In 1986, Ellen Halbert was a real estate broker living in Austin, Texas. She lived in a pretty upper middle class house. So she lived there with her husband and her son, who I believe was in high school. And she also had a daughter who had just moved out and was now attending University of Texas. Okay. And I don't have the date of when her attack took place, so just sometime in 1986. On the day of her attack, 
Ellen's son was staying at a friend's house, so it was the morning time, but he had spent the night the night before, so he wasn't home. Okay. And Ellen's husband had an early tea time at the golf club, so he had left about 4 or 5 a.m. to go meet up with his buddies for a game of golf. So, when Ellen woke up, she knew that she was going to be home alone and planned accordingly to just enjoy her morning, woke up a little early, drank some coffee, read the paper before she was going to go to work. Mm Mm-hmm. After she was done with her morning routine, she decided, okay, it's getting a little late in the morning, I'm going to head upstairs and hop in the shower. And so she did. After her shower, she started walking from her shower in her ensuite bathroom into her bedroom, and just as she got to the doorway between her bathroom and the bedroom, a man just came around the corner and was standing directly in front of her. That would be alarming. Very much so, especially since... At this point, she hadn't even put on any clothes. She was in a towel wrapped around her loosely, and suddenly there's a big, tall man wearing all black, and he also had one of those ninja masks around his face, so all she could see was his eyes. That would be fucking terrifying. And you wouldn't even feel real. It would be like like you couldn't quite be sure of what was happening. You know, when you wake up in the middle of the night and you think you see something in the corner of the room, and you're like... God, that was freaky for a second, but it was fake, you know? Yeah, yeah. And she actually said that it took her so off guard that her initial reaction, she's standing there holding her towel, and then she sees this man, and she just started laughing. She was like, I thought somebody was playing a joke on me. I thought it was my son or my husband or somebody dressed up in this costume. Yeah. And just was in complete denial, essentially. Oh, wow. Poor lady. However, she immediately stopped laughing when she looked up to his eyes and then saw that above him, his right hand was in the air, and he was holding a fucking meat cleaver. Oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah. So, And she's stuck in this bathroom. He's in the doorway between her leafing, and all she has on her is a towel. So Yeah, it's not like you can fight back with a towel. So he managed to grab her, and the two scuffled for a moment. Meanwhile, she's still naked. I can't imagine how vulnerable you would feel in this moment yeah and she started trying to demand him you need to leave like or if you're not going to leave tell me what you want i'll give you whatever you want and like bargaining with him yeah but you don't need a meat cleaver to make this happen yeah like i'm all alone clearly you know that yeah what a predator but he did not listen to her he instead tied her up and demanded that she not look at him, and she did so. She just looked down at the ground and was like, whatever you want, I swear I won't. Just leave, you know? And he started making some really weird comments at this time. Bizarre, like, where after he told her to look down and not look at him in the face, he actually took off his own mask and put it over her eyes so that she was blindfolded. And while he was doing this, he said to her, You know, it's really a shame that you can't see me because I am half black and half white and I'm actually a very handsome man. And she was like, I don't give a fuck, loser. Like, you know, like... Yeah, having creepy guys show up in my house, I really don't care what you look like. I just want you out. Yeah. And then he starts just asking her questions about her finances and he's told her, you have a really nice house. You must make a lot of money. How much is in your account? And she said, okay, good, he wants money. That That's a bargaining chip I can work with. And she said, she told him how much was in her account at the time, and she said, look, just let me get dressed and don't hurt me. I'll take you there and put in my pin and everything for you at the bank, and you can have as much money as you want. Take it all. I don't care. And he, that he was like, no, I don't think I'm going to do that. Thanks, though. And so he didn't want the money after all, it seems. Now he's there specifically for her. Yeah, so really, because, and it might seem lower level but I think that finances are super private to people Mm -hmm. I mean I don't tell anybody what my income is I don't tell anybody how much money I have in the bank Mm -hmm. so being asked that it was almost like an entry question to find out how vulnerable she would let herself be that's true or like how scared she was yeah that she probably wasn't gonna fight back right now because she's terrified yeah I think that it was him gauging how how cooperative she would be That's an interesting... Didn't think about that. But, okay, so yeah, that's a good point. So, he had just asked her about her finances. She told him and offered to drive him to the bank, and he said, nope, thanks. Now that Ellen was tied up, defenseless, and blindfolded, he did proceed to rape her. And this is multiple times, but I'm only going to say it once, because we get the idea. Yes. 
And he continued to do that for on and off for the next two hours. The stranger then, after he would do that, would cycle through. He would assault her sexually, and then he would start stabbing her with the the meat cleaver. But he was doing it kind of like little slice wounds almost instead of torturing her. Yeah, he's just trying to keep her scared. And toying with her. So he's doing that. And then he would assault her again. And then he would hit her in the back of her head multiple times. Apparently, he had also brought with him a hammer. What the fuck? Yeah. And I'm going to warn you, this is one of those really cringy, wincy stories coming up. So just... All right. When he was nearly done after these two hours of torture, he forced Ellen to write him a check for $800. And she did. And he then delivered... How do you write a check to somebody without identifying who they are? Or did he write... She write he probably cash? wrote her his own name or something, or maybe just didn't put it under a specific name. Yeah, but anytime the bank sees where the money went to, they're going to know whose account is... Or maybe, maybe he made her write it to cash and then sign the back. We'll get there, kind of. Okay. All right, I don't sorry. know the exact answer, but... We'll, I'm being you right now. I might be able to answer. <laughs> yeah, I might be able to answer. I just don't know if that will or not, because I know nothing about checks to begin with. You know what I mean? Millennial. Millennial. <laughs> so she wrote this check for $800. He then delivered what he intended to be the fatal blow to Ellen, hitting her as hard as he could over the top middle of her head with the cleaver. And when that didn't have the desired effect of going through her skull, he took the hammer and hammered it the rest of the way into her. Oh, fuck. I know. Oh. I, like, wanted to... I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine. I wanted to vomit when I read that. Did it knock her out? Was she at least unconscious? At this point, he thought that she was dead, and who wouldn't? Of course. And so, not wanting to leave any of his stuff, any of his evidence, he went to retrieve his weapons before he left and had to step on her head in order to get enough traction to pull the knife out of her skull. Oh, my God. And Ellen, however, was not dead, and she wasn't even unconscious. She was awake this entire damn time. What a warrior. Oh, my God. To be able to even survive that and then to be able to remember it? Not even... Pass out from shock. I can't imagine. I can't either. Man, that is one tough badass of a woman. Oh. This is going to make you cry, and it's going to make me cry, but I'm going to say it three times if I have to, but I will do it. All right. Okay. I'm ready. So Ellen was not dead. She wasn't even unconscious. When she heard the man leave, and once she was absolutely sure he wasn't going to come back, she dragged herself to the nearest landline and called her mom. She called her mom because she wanted to say goodbye because she thought she might die. Yeah. And she knew her son was coming home. She's just like, I don't have the energy to call help right now. I just need you to make sure he was not going to be the one to come home that evening or afternoon and find her this way. Was her mom local enough that she could come over? Mm Mm-hmm. So her mom got her father and said, Ellen needs us right now. You need to call 911. I'm going to head over there right now because I can get there faster than the police can at this point. And so they did. Both of her parents arrived before the ambulance ever did, and I cannot imagine what they saw. I can't even I can't even imagine walking and, and finding your daughter. I mean, she had to just be She was completely unrecognizable. She had to be yeah. completely mutilated and just just bloody, just mm-hmm. bloody head to toe and naked. So you know what happened. You know what's gone on in this room and I Yeah. But rather be there than not be there. Yeah, the mom was like, I'm going to put all of my shock and all that shit to the side because my baby needs me. That's so. right. As a mom, you just suck it up and you're like, I'm going to be there. I'm going to do this. So finally, the police and paramedics arrived and took Ellen to the hospital. As soon as she got there, rushed into surgery. Don't need to explain that. We all understand. Yeah. However, later that evening, while Ellen was still out and under anesthesia with the surgery, the man who had broken into her house was caught and arrested. They found him because he had gone to the nearest bank to her house and cashed the check and thought nobody would know that this woman had been attacked somehow. I suspected the check would be his undoing. Yep. Because the bank knows where that money came from and the bank knows where that money's going to. And even if they don't catch you while you're at the bank, you think they're going to find this woman even if she had died 
not go through her bank statements and find out, oh, a check was written by her this day. She probably told them that she had been forced to write a check, and they probably had flagged the check. Yeah, I think that's what happened. But I'm just saying, like, even if she hadn't survived this and told them that, yeah, he still would have gotten caught. That was such a dumb fucking move. Yeah, wow. And he did end up telling the police when they arrested him, I just found this. So I don't think she wrote it in his name. He was trying to say... I just found this on the street and I was trying to cash it. But then when they searched his person in his pants pockets, they found her still bloody wedding rings. So they're like, okay, you just found this with the check and you didn't think, huh, is that blood? Okay. So of all the things in the house that you could have taken, you decided only to take something that's a pure sentimental value. I mean, there may have been monetary value too. Mm Mm-hmm. So he just wanted to basically violate her in as many ways as possible. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the fact that she told him she has thousands of dollars in her bank account. I don't know the number and I don't blame her for not wanting to give that out. But she told him, I have all this money and you can have all of it. And all he did was ask for $800. And steal her wedding ring. That proves that it was never about the money to me. No, it was about, I'm controlling you, I'm making you do this, you're going to do what I want. Oh, and give me your wedding ring too. Mm-hmm, exactly. They arrested this man at the bank, and he was identified as 18-year-old Troy Wigley. All articles described him as a drifter. So I don't think he was local. I think he was local to Texas, but I don't think he was from the Austin area where she lived necessarily. It's hard to say if they hadn't immediately gotten her statement and found him at the bank, he could have been long gone. That's scary to think about. 18 years old and hammering a meat cleaver into somebody's skull. I mean, what gets you to that point where you are that evil? I do not know. That's unbelievable. And this is gonna creep you out too. Well, this whole story has creeped me out. Mm -hmm. The way that Troy found Ellen was he had not been watching her, stalking her. He didn't know anything about her. He just happened by her house 24 hours before he attacked her. And as he passed by, he noticed there was a man locking Ellen's front door and then placed the key under the mat. Oh, boy. And what had happened was Ellen realized in hindsight, 24 hours when he had seen this happen in front of her house, her father had stopped by to take her son to football practice and then put the spare key back under the mat, and that's what Troy saw. I don't understand why anyone keeps a key under their mat. I don't think they normally did. I think it was she gave it to her father and then said, can you just lock up once you leave and put it under the mat and I'll get it when I get home. I think it was like a one-time situational thing, and Troy just happened to see that. Just get an extra key, and next time your dad sees you, he can give the key back. Mm-hmm. Well, Everybody's going to look under the mat if they want to break into your house. It's like the oldest trick in the book. But anyway, so that's how Troy had stumbled upon it. And this is the creepy part. He saw the grandfather take the key, put it back under the mat, and then drive off with her son. Troy, at that point, looked around... Nobody was in the area, didn't seem to be anybody home, so he just immediately unlocked the door and hid in her attic for the next 24 hours. Oh my god. Until he watched her husband take off and then knew that her son the night before had gone and spent the night at a friend's house. (sighs) And then he, like, again, stayed in waiting until she got into the shower and he knew that she was alone. And And vulnerable. And vulnerable, yeah. And had no weapons. And he said, this is, now's the time if there ever was one. I can't imagine how unsafe you would feel for the rest of your life in your own home. That's... Well, I think anybody who has had someone break into their home, especially when they're there, Mm -hmm. I think anybody has that lingering feeling of not being safe and not being 100% sure that they're really alone. That's got to be a terrifying thing to go through. Yeah, and paranoid just of, okay, I know they got in this way, but how many 10,000 other ways are there that they could have got in that I'm not thinking about? Yeah. Well, and the fact that he was upstairs listening and paying attention. He knew everything that was going on in that house. And he's like, okay, well, there are three people here now. Okay, that one left. And that one left. Oh, the one I want is still here. Oh, there's the shower going. Mm -hmm. That is so creepy. Just unnerving. That is so creepy. That poor woman. So, while they're processing him down at the police station... In the trauma center, doctors discovered that Ellen had been stabbed repeatedly in her neck and chest, beaten the head with a hammer, 
They don't know how many times, but the surgeon working on her said it had to be at least eight to ten times based on the amount of impact wounds she had. Yeah. Could be more than that. So was he hitting her hard or was he playing with her like when he was using the cleaver to poke holes in her? I think the cleaver was more like slice and then the hammer was just to keep her passive and keep her down. So he was doing that one pretty full force because she had to have a complete skull reconstruction. Oh my God. After this. Oh, that's devastating. Along with the surgeries to fix her skull and brain injuries, she also had to have a total of 600 stitches to repair all of the other superficial wounds inflicted oh, on her. Oh my, 600 stitches. Sorry, I'm just picturing her poor mom and dad just walking into the- It's... Mm. But thankfully they did. Thankfully she called. Thankfully she got help. Mm-hmm. And her son didn't have to be the one to find her oh like this. Oh my god, that poor, like, yeah, I think he was like 16 years old. During her hospitalization, a rape kit was never performed because, and this is her own words, it sounds like she chose not to because she was too sick to have it done. And she kind of went on to explain a little bit more many years after this that at the time of her hospitalization, she was in such denial of what had happened. She was like, no, I wasn't raped. I wasn't raped. Like, she just couldn't allow herself to believe that also happened. She was just trying to... On top of everything else. She's just getting through the healing part right now. Yeah, and so she... It sounds like she told them she did not want one done. And so because of that, nobody was ever able to add the rape charges to his Mm. sentencing. So that's just heads up. It was her choice, and that's her right. Mm -hmm. When the trial for Troy Wigley began, Ellen had no doubt that she wanted to testify. She wanted to be there, look him in the eye, and tell him, fuck you, go to hell. Yeah. And she did. He did get a conviction for attempted murder in the state of Texas and was given life in prison. But in the state of Texas, at least at this time, it meant he was eligible for parole after 20 years. And since this was over 20 years ago... I looked him up. I don't have any record of if he ever got out, if he tried to get parole. I don't know. I don't see him anywhere. He might just have died in prison. Some states, I think all states, but I don't know how to use them all. Mm -hmm. They have an offender registry that you can find where they're located in prison. Did you try that? I did. I searched his name everywhere I could. I couldn't find even a correctional institute where he was sent after this. So he's probably walking the streets now. He could be. He also... He probably caused trouble he, in prison, so hopefully he got more added to his time. That, and he was almost up for capital punishment for this crime. Wow. Because it was so gruesome and just unfounded. He'd never met this woman before. He was very close to doing so, but well, I think... What he did was just monstrous. It's not like he went in and shot her. He went in and tortured her. It wasn't the means to an end of some kind. It was literally a selfish enjoyment. Yeah, he had a perverted enjoyment mm-hmm. out of this. I think the reason they were more lenient and only put him for life in prison is because he was only 18 years old and had just turned 18 years old, so they were kind of, maybe he can be reformed, but I don't think that he ever got out because he still, as far as like 2019 it seems, refused to say that he was guilty. He refused to take any accountability for what happened. So I just have a hard time believing that they will let him out. Well, I hope not. I'm always doubtful when somebody is performing this kind of horrific crime against someone, anybody, whether it's someone they know or a complete stranger, Mm -hmm. if you can do this to somebody at the age of 18, how the fuck are you ever going to turn into a nice law-abiding citizen? Yeah. I don't believe that for one second. Agreed. After all was said and done legally, Ellen and her husband actually ended up separating, and I think that was more mutual. I think it was just she was having a hard time looking at him again, and he was having a hard time being understanding about what she was going through, and so that went down. They got divorced, and then she also, soon after they separated, she lost her job, losing her only income. Ellen was really... being kicked when you're down. Going through it, yeah. And so Ellen naturally was feeling very lost and alone at this time. Absolutely. And so she reached out 
to a little support group that they had in the area of Austin with other crime victims, other rape victims, people from all around. So she reached out to a support group and she started joining them every week and quickly learned how therapeutic and validating it was to have actual understanding. Because while your husband doesn't like that happened to you, he understands it wasn't your fault. He still doesn't understand, though, you know? Right, he doesn't know why you are still so traumatized Yeah. years later. Yeah, it's like when you try to explain to your boyfriend or whatever that, oh, no, I'm scared of all men when I'm in public, and they're like, why? It's like, you just won't get it. You just, I can't explain it. It's like when you explain to people that you had natural childbirth, and they're like, oh, I bet that hurt. And I'm like, yeah, you don't know how much it hurt. Because it's like a train is parked on top of your abdomen, but they don't get it. From that support group, Ellen, in 1991, actually became very adamant in speaking publicly to other people, saying, hey, you might not be ready to talk about it, but if you need to talk to somebody about it, I'm here. She became the support group, basically. Okay. So in 1991, because of that, Ellen Halbert was appointed to the Texas Board of Criminal Justice for a six-year term, becoming the first ever victim of a violent crime on it. Oh, wow. I bet she could do a lot there. I just think that's wild. It took till 1991. Until they had a real victim. Until they actually bothered to go out and find somebody who knew what these people were going through. Yeah. That's... Wow. But, I mean, it's better late than never. Yeah. During her time there, Ellen heavily focused on studying various therapy treatments that could be used to help rehabilitate sexual and violent offenders while also providing an outlet for their victims. So trying to take the spotlight off of, I want this man to suffer as much as humanly possible, and taking it a little bit more on, I just want the victim to heal as much as possible and this person to hopefully get past it so they don't victimize again. And that's what she was focusing on. Yeah. While she was focusing on that and still volunteering, essentially, at the Texas Board of Criminal Justice, she had a quote that I just made me giggle. In her words, she said, I took advantage of the opportunity and turned a part-time unpaid position into a full-time unpaid position. <laughs> What she was trying to do became known as restorative justice, and that was her main goal. And what that meant was she wanted to get laws passed for victims' rights, where if they wanted to, and only if they wanted to, they were allowed to set up a meeting whether the person who victimized them wanted to or not, and they could bring in a mediator and talk to them privately and just essentially force them to listen to, this is what you did to me, But here's what you did to me after. Here's what you did to my family. My son doesn't talk to me anymore. My husband divorced me. Just to really kind of give a victim impact statement to them and the follow-up of what they've done. Right. So... And I think that there are some people that, even if they didn't want to sit there and participate in that Mm -hmm. as the perpetrator, I think that some people... They would take that and they're like, I didn't think about those after effects. Mm -hmm. I didn't think about how this would affect the rest of your life. Of course, if he's trying to kill you, he doesn't really care how it affects the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. But I think there are some people that that might be effective with, even if they don't talk back, even if they only sit there and have to listen to it. Yeah, and I think a lot of the people who don't, like the perpetrators who don't want to sit down and are forced to, A lot of them probably don't want to because then that means taking accountability for what you did and hearing this impact that you had and realizing, oh, I can't escape that. I really did that and she can't escape it either. And so now they're kind of giving her the voice back to do so. Yeah. I don't think it's going to force people to be empathetic, which I think is the goal, but I don't think it's going to work on a lot of people. That's not the goal, though. The goal is so that these people who have been victimized it's for them to have their voice yeah it's a choice that they can make finally and then oh i'm sorry are you uncomfortable that we are talking about this right now like how do you think i fucking felt when you attacked me in my bedroom yeah walking out of the shower you know yes that's her whole goal i just wanted to elaborate on that well i think it's a great idea i think Mm -hmm. it's a great idea to empower the people who survived these terrible encounters Mm -hmm. i don't think it's going to change the criminal but i think it might empower the survivor and that's just as important yeah well that was kind of the building block and that was during ellen's time back in the 90s so Mm -hmm. i'm sure they have built quite a bit onto that and have kind of well they've probably built upon it and and expanded it and learned what works and what what might make it better 
So while she was doing all that, <laughs> Ellen also in her spare time began working for the Austin District Attorney's Office, and that was an actual job. So she was getting money out of that one. Like a victim's advocate? Mm-hmm. And she actually ended up being completely in charge of the Victim Services Division. So she was the boss man there. Good, good for her. Yes. And finally, in 1999, Ellen received an award. I think they only gave like five or ten out. She received an award for Texas Women of the Century. Mm, wow. Sweet. That sounds important. Mm-hmm. And she now has a women's drug and alcohol unit of a prison named after her. It's called the Ellen Halbert Drug and Alcohol Treatment Facility for Women. Wow. Good mm-hmm. for her. And she goes there and visits with them and tries to also work with ways. Because a lot of these people that are in this specific prison are not victimizing people. It's more they are the victim of things and then it caught up to them. And so she goes to volunteer with them there and that's why they named it after her. But it's also these people probably are more like wouldn't do that if they hadn't been addicted and not as malicious as other prison units. Exactly. Mm Mm-hmm. For the past 20 years since all of that, well, over 20 years now, Ellen has worked with a foundation called Bridges to Life in Texas, telling her story to prison inmates and going through all of these different facilities, hoping that the horror of what she went through will possibly allow them to take a step back and recognize how damaging the after effects of their attacks can be. Right. And if you keep going and getting worse, this is the kind of thing it could lead up to. So if you are interested in that program at all or how it works, you can visit their website, bridges2life.org, and you can donate there, and you can also volunteer if you or someone you know has been a victim of a violent crime to sign up and go in your state to a prison and speak with the prisoners there. Bridges T.O. Life. Ellen seems to have since retired, but her impact on victims of violent and sexual crimes lives on. It sure does. That's just such a horrible, horrible thing he did. Yeah. At such a young age. I mean, how do you have that much hatred and anger in you by age 18? And there was absolutely no hesitation. It was so calculated and so, like... He had 24 hours to think about it. 24 hours, and he wasn't up there pacing back and forth. He's just up there, like, Hmm, bored. Hope they leave soon so I can kill her. Yeah, it's just weird. That's just just freaky and bizarre. And I was kind of upset because I couldn't find anything about it. I literally just wanted a picture of his mugshot or something back in the day. Well, as arrogant as he was, I'm surprised he didn't put it out there himself. Well, it was... I'm a very handsome man. He's like, can I have a copy of that mugshot? You guys just took on me. I want to hang my own picture in my cell. I'm such a beautiful man. He could be the most perfect specimen of a human male. Mm-hmm. And he's still an ugly piece of shit because of the way he treats people. Mm-hmm. That was really hard. He was so... That was a really rough cringy story. Cringy listening to her. And you can listen to her tell her story. She has an I Survived from 2008 or something like that, I think. Mm-hmm. So if you search her name, I Survived, you can find that. Okay. But it's so hard to watch. And she's so strong. She's just like, yeah, so then this happened. Then you had to step on my head and pull the... And I'm just like, ah! <laughs> They're just telling you the facts. This is what happened to mm-hmm. me. And that's why I survived. And warrior. Yes, me. I have one little thing. I was on my phone and I was playing my favorite game that I like to play every once in a while. Where I go on writeaprisoner.com. Oh, God. And I never actually write them. I won't. Okay. <laughs> um, because a lot of them you have to give your address for a return. And I'm like, no thanks. I'm good. I think I don't need to be giving my address out to a bunch of people in prison. Yeah, I think that's probably for the best. I like to go on there and I like to look at their mugshot and their name and age and guess what is his charge. <laughs> Okay. So I was doing the Fulton County gentleman, and I got bored with them. So I expanded my search all the way out, and this is how I discovered that Arizona and Idaho definitely have the hottest prisoners. But definitely, if you're going to go on there and search Arizona and Idaho prisons, check their charges, because there were men who looked like Patrick Swayze, and so I'd be like, hello, and then I'd go down and read the charges, like, sodomy of a minor, and I'm like, oh, okay, I'm not gonna message you. Oh, gross. 
So I'm just saying, they're the most disgusting men, but if you want some eye candy, they're gorgeous. I've never been a big fan of Patrick Dempsey. Swayze. Oh, well, all right then. I mean, either one. <laughs> Sorry, <take>. Patrick Dempsey. <laughs> no disrespect. I know we were talking about Patrick Swayze, but Patrick Dempsey is fucking uggo. <laughs> He's not ugly. He just doesn't do anything for me. No, I'm with you on that. <laughs> Girl, you need to log off of this website and go to sleep. This is... <laughs> you definitely don't get on there after a vodka drink because in the morning you've got 15 emails from prisoners in Idaho. No thanks. <laughs> so I think that is all we have for you for episode 71 because we are exhausted. This has been a rough one. Yeah, um, it was. Thanks, guys. We will see you next week for episode 72. And until then... We are out. Bye. Bye. This is the sound check. It's not meant for their ears. Yeah, but some of it always ends up in there. <laughs> for instance, oh, there's another siren. It's an exciting day in where really we live. Close. Yeah, and that's a that's a fire truck. That was like right at the start of our street. They were like, oh, I, I think there's a podcast being recorded on this street. Let's just go. And fighting with the emergency vehicles to just do it somewhere else. <laughs> go have your emergency somewhere else. Couldn't have done this tomorrow or something. Rude. I, yeah, I saw it. <laughs> <laughs> nope, now I'm... <laughs> I'm too invested in this chase now. Okay. Sorry, Bear. <laughs> Probably a pretty strategic move on her part, though. Stra a strategic move? Strategic? I can't talk. <laughs> strategic? Yeah. That's... They, they, you know. <laughs> what? Put them all on an island. Why are you so obnoxious today? Go chase the fire engine. Shut up, puss. Shut up. <sighs> She's annoying me. I will kill her. I'll kill you back. All right. All right. That was a good hook you got there. <laughs> Sounds like you punched her. <laughs> I didn't. Now shut up and stop purring so loud. Yeah, you're not going to think, oh, let me search my name on Google, you know, right. to see what's going on. Oh, we're going to have to delete that. I don't know how this ends, but I hope that whoever this company was is also being pressed charges against because fuck that. That should again, dirty. Again, that's dirty. something you'll have to delete. Okay. She's eating your purse. Damn it. <laughs> Will you get out of here? I'm going to lock you in the basement. <laughs> Why don't you just close the back slider doors in the sunroom until we're done? Happy Mother's Day to you! <laughs> I'm mad at you, but I still love you, brat. Oh, okay, well, now I'm out of breath, too. We need a Xanax up in here. I'm all mad now. If you can hear her in the background, I'm sorry, but I can't do anything else about it. <laughs> Our hands are tied, man. That damn cat. Rough. Okay. Did you just bark at me? Because of the breakaway to go put the cat in jail and you get no treats for in the fact, next hour. In fact, you have to pay us six treats today. Don't barf them up, please. Then, after doing that stuff... <laughs> <laughs> after her morning routine... Oh, you can see where his thighs. Oh, you can see... <laughs> he had little cut-off pants, but then the socks were real high. Never thought we'd have that occurrence again. Nope. Um, <laughs> you're burping. I'm sitting here forgetting how to read. I'm cussing the cat out and chasing her around the house. At least she shut the fuck up. We should have just done that to begin with. <laughs> no, every time we start recording, we lock the cat up in a closet. <laughs> or just melatonin. We'll take like a little dab of it in our cheek. A little pinch between the cheek and gum. ones. <laughs> it's hanging in one of the trees, so I just have to climb the tree. God, if it's not puss, it's you. And if it's not you. You was the fire trucks, and if it's not the fire trucks, <laughs> it was me. I was the train. You were the train on my vroom, abdomen. Vroom. <laughs> we are both jumping into each other's you need features. You to shut the fuck up. I'm kidding. <laughs> so. That was a really long so. So I was doing all the Fulton County once. Fulton County is in Atlanta, Georgia. 
Yes, it is. And it was also featured on Scared, not Scared Straight, wrong show, <laughs> 60 Days In. An hour and a half of recording time, even though about half of that will be me running around the house cussing at the animal. Sorry to do this on Mother's Day. <laughs>